Hello, Mark. Hey, Adam. Great to be with you here today. It's a pleasure to have you. And you stand in stark contrast to my last guest, who was a communist. Well, that's cool. It's good to see that there's uh, hopefully some still some good communists around. <laughs> he was a very civil fellow. He was a nice guy. It's I, in the spirit of fairness, I have everyone on. Well, so that's great. Real communists, um, you know, not the political leaders who tend to be ruthless, but the run-of-the-mill communist tends to be very well-intentioned person, and so they're just misguided as to how the real world works. And as you know, the, the Austrian economists have been dealing with Marxism and communism uh, since the very beginning. I mean, uh, a lot of the things that the early uh, Austrian economists were dealing with were problems with classical liberalism and the labor theory of value, dealing with the exploitation theory of labor and all of those issues, trying to correct the errors that were in classical economics that led Marx to break away from the free market tradition and, and develop his theory uh, of Marxism and communism. And uh, Mises also, in his book Socialism, which was one of his early works, was uh, dealing explicitly with the uh, possibility of socialism. And, and basically, one of his major contributions was to show that um, pure socialism is theoretically impossible. In other words, you can't have the pure uh, communist uh, socialist system where everything is decided by a dictator or by a committee or even by a large bureaucracy with lots of smart people and high-powered computers. Uh, one decision maker uh, makes the idea of valuing uh, resources uh, impossible because you have to have a market with people who have rights to these resources and making trades uh, essentially to find out where the best uses of our resources lie. And if you, if you don't have that, the this, this system of socialism breaks down into chaos and it's literally impossible to have an advanced form of civilization without the market process, without prices, without money, without wage rates. And of course, the Russian communists quickly found this out um, and uh, started using money, started using wage rates, starting uh, markets around the margin and borrowing prices from uh, from the West. And uh, and so we've we've always been concerned uh, with and continue to be concerned with socialism in all of its various forms critical flaw of socialism is that it does not provide an effective way to determine the price of different items. That's absolutely correct. This is something that Mises essentially proved in 1920 and in his book that came out later called Socialism. And there was a whole socialist calculation debate in the 1930s and in the 1940s. Uh, and essentially, even at the time, the 
the communists, the socialists, conceded Mises's point. Uh, and so it was just a matter of time when socialism would uh, break down, even though they were making allowances and moving uh, towards a market economy, the vast bulk of Russian and Eastern European socialist economies, they still had the bulk of their capital, their land, their buildings, their factories, their farms were still uh, largely centrally planned. Uh, and then, of course, the whole system came uh, crashing down. Uh, this was realized in Russia, Eastern Europe, and, of course, in China. Um, and since that time, of course, the aftermath of the breakdown of socialism was, was indeed chaos. But as they've introduced the marketplace in those countries, Vietnam, China, Russia, the uh, East Bloc countries, the former Soviet countries, uh, progress has uh, clearly been made uh, as a result of uh, recognizing Mises's point, um, dropping the centrally planned functions, adopting market reforms, certainly not a free market economies over there, uh, but they've made great progress. And I'd like to point out that uh, Rothbard, Murray Rothbard, Mises's student in, in the United States, uh, he also made the uh, argument, which is valid based on uh, Mises's analysis, that even if you had a corporation, even if you had a free market corporation with shareholders and board of directors and, you know, the whole nine yards as we see it today, if you had a corporation that owned all capital in an economy, that also could not function in the sense of determining prices. It couldn't value its own assets. It wouldn't know how valuable a warehouse was or farmland was or the labor within the firm or the, the, the skyscrapers that it owned. Uh, it, 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 too, would suffer from the same problem. So it's not just, um, you know, communism that's the problem. It's that you need economic calculation to take place in order to value resources, land, labor, and capital in order to put them to their best use. And if you don't have that, you can uh, end up uh, with a system where basically you're just simply wasting uh, resources in the economy. Yes, and I'm not sure if people fully understand the complexity of price signaling. And to them, say, the commodities market seems like wasteful speculation, but it, nothing could be farther from the truth. Without futures, for instance, prices would be very volatile, and they would vary from season to season. That's absolutely right. The, the price system is unbelievably complex. Um, it's, first of all, it's worldwide. Um, second of all, it involves all of us, uh, whether we're buyers, whether we're sellers, or whether we're abstainers. Um, you know, that's something that we make, that each of us decides on an ongoing basis. So right now, I'm providing, uh, you know, the service to the economy of teaching economic classes, uh, but I may change my mind and start writing textbooks uh, if textbook prices are high enough to, you know, to compensate me for giving up my time in the classroom. Uh, you know, and if uh, cab 
taxi services, if the price of that went up high enough, I might drop both of those things and be a, cat, a taxi cab driver. So this involves all of us worldwide uh, in each market area for each product. Um, and there's just absolutely no way that that, can be, the, the, that information can be found out uh, any other way but by uh, people actually acting in the market economy, buying, selling, abstaining uh, across the whole broad spectrum of goods and services in the economy. Um, you know, and so markets do that. They find out that information and they allocate resources uh, to their highest valued uses. They conserve resources. They don't exploit uh, resources. Um, you know, they don't exploit um, non-renewable resources. They don't exploit and overuse uh, any kind of resources. So the owners of this property and this capital, they deploy this property and capital uh, when the prices are right, but they also conserve these resources when the prices aren't right. And uh, that's very key. Uh, the, the communist and socialist systems tended to both overuse some resources and exploit them and underutilize other resources um, in the economy, and that's where you get chaos, that's where you get um, overusage and underusage, and ultimately the consumer in those economies um, loses out, and loses out in a very important way, um, you know, not having enough to eat, uh, for example, that's very important, and of course, uh, when in the heyday of communism, you know, it was the case that uh, you know, people to told their children, you know, you have to finish everything on your plate because children are starving in China, and that was correct. Uh, the same was true in the Soviet Union, where people lined up for hours and hours uh, to get, uh, you know, basic goods and, and food uh, in the economy. It was the case in the Soviet Union that people would get into lines even though they didn't know uh, what, was, what might be available. All they knew was that, uh, of course, they had enough paper money to buy anything they wanted. Uh, it was just a matter of there wasn't much to buy. And so people would get in these lines with the idea that, well, someone must know that something is available inside the store, and they're willing to buy anything, goods and services, food, bread, whiskey, uh, because they've got plenty of this paper money, but they don't have uh, access to goods and services. So it's not just you know, a little bit of chaos. It's not just, you know, doing without in, in terms of some goods and services. It's, it's across the board, and it, it means people are suffering. That's the, that's the real issue. And based on what you said, it sounds like even a minor alteration in prices from some external artificial program by the government can have enormous ramifications. So any interference, taking a page from systems theory, can cause a ripple effect. That's absolutely correct, Adam. Um, and we can see that, you know, in our own economy as well. I mean, the price system is not a perfect system. It's a system that is always moving towards changing underlying conditions, changing demand, 
And so we're always trying to, uh, in a sense, the system is always trying to catch up uh, to the under the changing underlying reality. And uh, when government intervenes in the economy, of course, that is exactly where you see these these ripples uh, taking place. So that um, you know, government interventions uh, can cause. Uh, shortages in some areas that um, mean that resources uh, from other markets are going to try to transfer themselves into those areas uh, where the shortage is being induced. And um, as a result, it's going to affect other markets, which are then going to, um, you know, show shortages of certain inputs that uh, require uh, more resources to move around in the economy. So the, the price system is doing this, and we're not really necessarily uh, noticing it all that much. But when government intervention comes in and, and causes larger disturbances, um, then, you know, we, we do start to notice that, and, and things do start to move around. Now, the topic of equilibrium brings a fairly technical and perhaps too large question to ask for this <clears throat> podcast, but could you briefly summarize the differences between Austrian and neoclassical economics? Well, Austrian economists use um, equilibrium as a theoretical device. Um, we, um, for example, if we were to try to envision an economy in perfect equilibrium where everything that happens today will happen tomorrow and the day after that everything is uh, going ahead um, in a sort of a circular fashion we call that the evenly rotating economy and we do that to for example to be able to distinguish between profit on the one hand and interest on the other in this evenly rotating economy there would be interest uh, that is earned on capital investments, uh, but there would be no profit because there's no uncertainty, uh, because everything that happens today happens tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. So if there's no uncertainty uh, in an economy, then there is no profit. And so we uh, can, on that basis, distinguish that it's uncertainty that leads to profit and the entrepreneur, uh, the capitalist entrepreneur who invests under uncertainty in the real world is um, earns as a result profit. And so Mises, Frank Knight, and the Austrians have a theory of entrepreneurship um, as the entrepreneur is the uncertainty bearer in an economy. Um, and so that's the type of theoretical device that we use equilibrium as a tool to discover theoretical insights. Now, mainstream neoclassical economics uh, uses uh, equilibrium in a more mechanistic type of way where they think that markets and market prices are establishing equilibrium 
uh, in a, on an ongoing basis in markets. And um, so they, they, they try to, instead of making theoretical uh, deductions about the economy, uh, they make it, they, they sort of imply it into markets as a regular feature of the market economy. And um, Austrians don't view the real world as being in equilibrium per se. We uh, view markets as uh, constantly changing and, and always subject to um, uh, new factors, changes in tastes, um, all sorts of things, and that the market is digesting these changes through entrepreneurship. And so it's a different, it's a different view of the world. We like to think of markets being in harmony rather than in equilibrium. And by harmony, uh, we, we mean that buyers and sellers in each market are both benefiting um, whether the price is rising, whether the price is falling, whether the price is staying the same. Uh, both parties to the exchanges are benefiting uh, by interacting in markets. And so we, we like to think of market activity and markets in general as being in harmony with, with, within and between markets rather than calling them in equilibrium, which implies some sort of mechanism um, aside from human action. Yes, their models have been criticized by both Austrians and Keynesians alike as overly mechanistic, silly, removed from reality. So there's something you guys can agree upon. It's to throw rocks at the neoclassicists. <laughs> That's right, Adam. Um, you know, and we obviously when we're on air, we're criticizing neoclassicals as well as Keynesians and so forth. Uh, that's not to say that there's not a lot of smart people uh, within neoclassical mainstream economics and having a, a positive impact uh, on people. It's just that their basic underlying methodology, we think, is flawed. And as a result, they come up with a lot of bad, bad theoretical and empirical reasoning and uh, of course ultimately this uh, gets digested down into uh, actual policy and support for policies which turn out to be harmful exactly and one example we can think of it happened around 2008 well yes that's that's absolutely right the uh, mainstream neoclassical monetarists uh, who were, of course, you know, very influential within the economics profession uh, and even very influential in policy circles, including being in control of the central bank, the Federal Reserve. They had a view of things that, uh, you know, if you control the money supply in such a manner that uh, you'll create prosperity, stability, equilibrium in the economy. Um, and, uh, you know, so they want to control the value of money. And uh, the, 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 their famous policy prescription is uh, inflation targeting, where uh, the U.S. under Bernanke and, and Greenspan, and really it's a worldwide phenomenon, this inflation targeting that developed as early as the 1980s, but certainly became actualized in the 1990s, um, whereby the central bank wants 
the value of the money monetary unit, the dollar, to depreciate by a few percentage points. In other words, like in the U.S., they wanted inflation to be at or near 2%. And by inflation, they're, um, they're referring to the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, or some variation on the Consumer Price Index, so that they would increase the money supply in order to keep the dollar depreciating at a small rate. Um, now, the Austrians, we don't want that kind of thing. We don't want to automatically be adding money and credit into the system. We, we see the, the monetary unit uh, you know, being affected by supply and demand in the economy reacting to real factors and changing its value, and that acts as um, kind, of like, kind of like an equilibrating uh, function in the economy. So that as, as the demand uh, for money increases for whatever reason, uh, its purchasing power rises, you know, that sort of thing. And so as, as you see 2003, 2004, 2005, and six and seven, the Austrians were saying you're causing a problem in the economy, you're increasing the supply of money, you're increasing the supply of credit. Uh, they brought the interest rate down to 1% and kept it there for a long time, and they essentially induced a credit bubble. And uh, this led to a housing bubble in the economy and a massive shift of resources uh, into the housing sector and construction. Uh, the number of construction workers increased, the number of uh, firms and resources devoted to all the various aspects of the housing market, the real estate people, um, you know, all of the tools that go into that, that sector of the economy increased dramatically, the mortgage uh, business increased dramatically, and uh, moving out of things like manufacturing. Um, and so they induced this giant bubble, and we were writing about it. Um, Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G. Uh, we had a couple articles about it in 2003. I wrote about it on LouRockwell.com in 2000, February of 2004. Uh, in June uh, 2004, I wrote an article for Mises.org called Housing, colon, Too Good to Be True, question mark. And basically, I let up, you know, laid this all out uh, for people in 2004. Uh, and so we continued to write about that in 2005. We saw a top in the, in the housing uh, construction uh, corporations in the, in the market in 2006. And sure enough, in 2007, the whole thing started to fall apart. And yet Bernanke and the mainstream economists were uh, they were talking and, and denying, you know, as, as people in the mainstream media started hearing stories uh, about what the Mises Institute was writing, about what Ron Paul and Peter Schiff were saying as a result, you know, they started getting questions, and um, Bernanke, Greenspan were just denying all this. Uh, Bernanke in, in 2005 in an interview said that, uh, that he had investigated mortgage banking uh, practices and regulators, and um, he said that things were now better in that sector, better managed than at any point in history. And, and this is at the same time that uh, the mortgage industry 
which was trying to get you know trying to sell all this Sadly, the recording ends here, but I will be happy to have Mark back on the show. A good night.